Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. We begin the interview series for Unobscured Season 3 with Adam Wood, author of Swanson, The Life and Times of a Victorian Detective, and longtime editor of Ripperologist magazine. Adam also leads Mango Books, where he publishes new work in true crime and police history. Anyone who has researched the Whitechapel murders in the past 20 years has benefited from Adam's work. In the pages of Ripperologist magazine, Adam has curated and sharpened the questions, speculation, and debates around the Whitechapel murders. As well as editing good work by others, Adam has also written detailed studies of people like Donald Swanson and Coroner Wynne Baxter, who you'll know well from this season of Unobscured. But Adam's contribution to understanding Victorian Whitechapel goes beyond the pages of books and magazines. He has been essential to developing the community of writers and thinkers hunting the killer online and in person. Conferences and conversations about Whitechapel have relied on Adam for guidance and insight for years. We're delighted to have his perspective on Unobscured. Researcher Carl Nellis asked Adam to describe how he came to write a biography of Donald Swanson and met the Swanson family along the way. That's where we'll get started. This is the Unobscured Interview Series for Season 3. I'm Aaron Mankey. I began researching for an article from Ripologist magazine, which, as you said, I'm the editor on. And it's regarding the Swanson marginalia, which are pencil annotations made by Donald Swanson in his retirement, which seem to identify Jack the Ripper. And while I was researching for that article, someone asked where I'd like to be introduced to the Swanson family. And, of course, I jumped at the chance. It turned out they didn't live too far from me, and they'd kept a vast amount of papers, notebooks, and documents belonging to Donald, and most of it was information which had never been seen before outside of the family. And I quickly realised there was a fantastic story needing to be told. So when that article was finished, I told the family I'd like to write a book, and they couldn't have been more helpful. I met a number of times with Donald's great-grandson, Neville Swanson, who would hand me a box of material in exchange for one, which i just photographed. And eventually I sorted everything in chronological order first and then researched each case or incident in Swanson's life to build up the complete picture before writing it up. And seven years later, I got, got to the point where the book was almost in good shape. Yeah. 
And very early on, I realized there's an opportunity not just to tell Swanson's story, but also to relate the evolution of the Met Police throughout that period. So I could link together all the appointments and resignations of the various police commissioners, which has a bearing on police activity during the Whitechapel murders. So the events in the book didn't just happen in isolation. I, I realised everything has context. One incident leads to another and so on. And in Swanson's uh, career and personal life, I wanted to get across the, that context so it gives us an understanding of why certain events happened in the way that they did in 1888. Yeah, let's explore a little bit more about what you just said, that the book covers far more than the Whitechapel murders. And by following Swanson's life story, we get to see kind of a lot about Victorian London, but beyond London too, because of course he grows up in Scotland and he has contacts uh, outside of London. He investigates cases that have implications and the reaches of empire. Um, So maybe would you offer us uh, a few thoughts on what's valuable in your opinion about studying the Victorian period in that kind of robust way, following the eyes of particular people, but really uh, what do we get when we step into the Victorian world? What does it offer us? Well, I think the mid to late Victorian era is extremely important in terms of studying police history, particularly because the Metropolitan Force had only been formed 40 years before Swanson joined in 1868. They were still sending officers for Cutler's training in response to the Fenian bombing campaign, which was ongoing at the time, and the detective department was only 25 years old. And by contrast, when Swanson retired in 1903, the Met had just started using fingerprint evidence. So the 35 years of Swanson's career, covering the late Victorian period, saw an enormous development in forensics and methods of detection. We can carry that evolution through to more recent times, the introduction of the photo fit, chemical composition forensics, and of course DNA. Before we really step into exploring the Whitechapel case and, and East London in detail, um, I'd love to just, for our listeners especially, to hear a little bit more about the work that you've done for Ripperologist and maybe uh, Mango Books as well, um, to give a little sense of what you really bring to this study. Well, I've been on the editorial board at Ripperologist magazine since 1997, which is three years after the magazine was founded, and I've been the executive editor since 2008. Uh, our most recent issue is number 167, so it gives you an idea of, of how much work is in that, in that volume. And I think it's interesting looking back over the articles over the years to see how attitudes to the Whitechapel murders case have changed. We've had fads for various suspects, the Diary of the Ripper, and more recently Catherine Edo's shawl, which was tested for DNA. So there have been a lot of changing attitudes over the years. That's been really good for me personally as the editor of the magazine because it's helped me to stay neutral in my approach to the case. I don't really have a favourite suspect as such in the Ripper investigation. But um, when I started work on the uh, Swanson book in 2012, uh, as I said earlier, with the amount of offshoots and different lines of research I knew that was going to be in there, I thought it was going to be unlikely if I went to a mainstream book publisher to get the whole story told without having to chop out at least half of the research. So I decided um, just to self-publish it, basically, my background's in graphic design um, and printing uh, expertise. So I decided to self-publish it uh, and just really cover everything that I found in, in the research. And, and a friend of mine, um, Neil Bell, who's a co-author on the first book that I published in Mango Books, uh, said, yeah, that's a great idea. Swanson can be completely as you want it. But I've got an idea for a book, which is The Police Code 1889, which was the guide 
for the Victorian police that the director of the CID, Howard Vincent, had created. Um, we took the 1889 version as a, as a really as an exercise to to try out the printer that I'd identified and see if they're, you know, the marketing expertise. It went very well. And then someone said, I didn't know you're a publisher. I've got an idea on the craze, another East End uh, crime story. And it just went from there. Every time I published a book, didn't intend to create mango books as such. It was more of a personal um, project. I just get, get more and more submissions. And I think it's gone very, very well. And, and now there's probably about 35 to 40 titles on the Mango Brooks imprint and Blue Lamp Books, which is police history. Um, various topics ranging from Victorian era through to the craze in the 60s. Uh, and, and for me personally, it's been obviously quite good setting up the bit, not only the business side of things, but I've learned quite a lot as well with various cases, um, learning the publishing industry. But I, I do I do always say that, that, that the creation of Mango Books is probably half the reason why the Swanson book took seven years rather than the the two and a half that I'd planned in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so many of us are both grateful for your work in Ripperologist and for Mango Books and the kinds of things you've produced. And in this case in particular, of course, I'm really glad that you made that choice with Swanson because it did mean it can be a little bit of a unique project that has, as you say, so many offshoots, so many interesting aspects that if it was being published elsewhere, might have been kind of shaved off, smoothed yeah, out. Um, but there's so much interesting detail, and it really gives us a sense for the texture of, of his life and gives us fascinating glimpses into the world around him. Um, let's step into that world. Let's go to London's East End in 1888. Um, and start talking about crime in London at that time. Um, there's violent crime on record in the neighborhood uh, throughout the 1880s. But if we focus only on the Whitechapel murders, it might give us a slightly distorted picture of what life was like there. So how violent was Whitechapel and surrounds in the 1880s? What was the general understanding of that violence among the people who lived there, maybe the middle-class readers of the press, the police. What was, can we get a clearer picture of maybe violence in Whitechapel in the 1880s? Well, I think the thing to remember about the East End at that time was it that that was the area where most poverty in London was uh, really where the residents suffered. And through that and the desperation that the, those poor people felt, the crime crime was was bred and that was also the area where the immigrants first landed when they arrived in London. So there was similar intentions among the whole population, really. But 50 years earlier, the rookeries where the poor and the criminal classes congregated were to be found in the East, in the West End, rather, in St. Giles area. And Spitalfields and Whitechapel in the early 1800s were, by comparison, quite prosperous. But when the West End was developed, a large number of people were forced from the rookeries. And when Oxford Street and Shaftesbury Avenue, which are well-known West End uh, streets now were developed. Uh, the St. Giles area was demolished and more than 5,000 5, poor residents were relocated to the East End. And when you combine that large uh, movement of, of poor, uh, poverty-stricken residents into an area, as I say, which had been prosperous, but the buildings were getting old and dilapidated, um, certainly the, 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 the sewage facilities around the East End were getting dated, uh, it just become too overcrowded. Um, 
and, and obviously, unfortunately, um, poverty and over uh, an overcrowding does breed a criminal element. And with the mistrust of the growing numbers of Jewish immigrants settling in Whitechapel, the area was a bit of a powder keg waiting to explode. And it's not, not surprising in those in that situation that unprovoked attacks on others or domestic violence was was quite commonplace, and to some degree expected. And of course, with the press uh, until the Ripper murders, it was almost sort of overlooked the East End. It was incredible how close it was to the city, which obviously uh, at that time, London, uh, the UK had a large empire run from London. And it was interesting and surprising, really, how close to that centre of that empire the East End was, but it was almost forgotten about and sort of pushed to one side. So the problems that the East End were having with violence and all the poverty were, were ignored by the press until the Ripper came along. So in a way, sort of acted as a little bit of a sort of a social cleanser but yeah violence less so much murder but more petty violence and, and domestic violence was quite prevalent in the east End at that time mm. and donald swanson as a member of the police uh is in that environment not always in the east end often serving elsewhere in london but is there something we could say to kind of sum up a commonality to the majority of crimes investigated by Donald Swanson during that time. If it wasn't murder after murder after murder, um, what kinds of crimes was he investigating? Uh, and how often was he in the East End versus elsewhere in London? Well, the, the street violence was usually dealt with by the uniformed policemen on the beat. And those officers were, who gained promotion, such as Swanson, would be transferred to a different division within the Met. So not always once you became a sergeant, an inspector, or joined the detectives, you'd move out of uh, one division, move into another. And so it was his Swanson. He served the first two years of his career as a police constable in A Division, which is in Westminster where the government and other official buildings were situated. So it's unlikely that in those early years, he saw much in the way of street violence uh, while on his beat. Uh, he was transferred to Y Division in Highgate, which is North London. Uh, and the following year promoted to sergeant, transferred to Bow in, in East London in 1871. And then from there to Plasto Station, also in the East End. Uh, and finally, he's moved to Scotland Yard in 1876. So he served a total of five years in the East End during the early 1870s. And he probably knew the area well. But because he he'd served his early days on the beat where he would have seen that sort of violence, were really served elsewhere. Although he'd have been aware that the East End was a very violent area, he wouldn't have seen much personally. Mm. In in Swanson, you tell an interesting story of a case, and, and the, the coverage in the book is brief, and I've gone back and looked at the newspapers, and, and the coverage in the papers is brief, but uh, this is 17 years before the Whitechapel murders in, in 1871. Uh, some of our main figures that we think about when we think about the Whitechapel murders, uh, especially uh, Frederick Aberline, and now with your book, so helpfully uh, lifting Swanson to the same deserved level of attention. Uh, those two men together infiltrated an illegal playhouse. <laughs> Can you describe <laughs> that operation? Well, that's the only case I was able to find where Swanson and Abilene worked together, but there must have been more as they were both stationed at Kentish Town Police Station for the 15 months that Swanson was on Y Division. So that they must have they must have worked more closely. But this one, as you've said, found out for yourself, Carl, is the only one in the newspapers, and it's only briefly reported on, but it occurred in July 1871. Swanson was a PC and Abilene a sergeant. And complaints have been made to the police that the infamous theatre presario, impresario George Sanger, uh, was putting on plays without a licence. And to get around this, 
he'd placed advertisements stating that entry was free. But when nearly 400 people turned up on the night, they were told they had to buy a programme before they'd gain admittance. Swanson and Aberline went along in plain clothes and watched the performance and observed what the newspapers described, got it written here, as several drunks, men of a doubtful character and women of an immoral character, causing nuisance to the the public. So you can just imagine what an evening that that was like. Uh, Sanger eventually appeared before the magistrates and was fined just £5. And I I know a little bit about Sanger. He did go on to continue with his... his, uh, um, illegal playhouse career, shall we say, and he was quite quite notorious. But <laughs> Swanson was transferred to Bow in the East End three months later and Abilene to Whitechapel two years later. Uh, and as you said, they worked on the, the Ripper investigation together in 1888. And there's no doubt at that time they would have remembered each other. And in fact, in Swanson's personal address book, which I'm very lucky to own, he's got uh, Abilene's address in that address book. Um, where where he retired to, so the detectives obviously remained friendly throughout all those years. Mm. Mm. So let's spend a little more time focused on Donald Swanson and who he was. Um, he's a Scot from Terso. Uh, you give a compelling portrait of his early life and his entry into the London police. And I've heard you say in other talks that uh, when you're reading biographies, uh, you're often frustrated when (laughs) all the early life gets skipped over in the first page, and then it's just on to something that happens when the subject is in their 50s or something like that. That's right, yeah. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the early formation of who Swanson was. Um, Can you give us a picture uh, of of his family and where he grew up? Well, Swanson, I think perhaps uniquely among policemen of that time, you know, a lot, a lot of a lot of uh, constables joined the police were from out of London, um, labourers or farm workers, and came looking for regular work, which which the police obviously was at that time. Um, but Swanson grew uh, was born uh, to a, a brewing family. His father, John Swanson, moved around Caithness, which is in the far north of Scotland, even, even beyond the Highlands. If you tell anyone from Thurso where he grew up, that oh, he grew up in the Highlands, they get quite upset because they count it as the lowlands up there. But uh, his, his family moved around from basically from distillery to distillery, uh, very small affairs, either brewing whiskey, uh, brewing beer rather, or distilling whiskey. Um, and I visited the, the small farmhouse where he, where he was born, uh, and it's just literally a, a small stone affair on a, on a bend of a river with sheep grazing around there's there's nothing around for about seven or eight miles uh unfortunately uh donald's father john swanson had an accident this is this is before donald was born but his mother was pregnant with him he had an accident where he his clothing was caught in a bit of machinery in his studio and his arm was dragged in eventually had to have that removed um and with the elder sons um having to well left home for other types of work uh, John Swanson couldn't continue in, in that trade anymore and moved to Thurzo, which was the nearest town about seven miles away. Um, and that was quite that was quite good for Donald because it was he, he meant he didn't have to work in the distillery, he didn't become a labourer on the farm. He obviously had quite a high degree of intelligence. Um, he was he went to the local school in Thurzo, which at that time it wasn't compulsory to send your children to school, and it was um, basically you had to pay for an education, but I think that his parents must have seen something in their youngest son, Donald, and they, they paid for him to go to school. Uh, he spent um, 11 years in two schools in Thurzo and proved to be a, an exceptional pupil. 
regularly winning um, prizes in uh, educational and annual educational uh, examinations. And eventually, by the time he was 16, he became um, a second master at the Miller Institute, which is the school he was in, um, assisting the head teacher. And it looked as though he had a, um, a career marked out in education. Um, but I'm not quite sure. There's, there's, there's two possible reasons why he gave up that job in the June of 1867 and moved to London. Um, either, as, as often reported, he, he didn't see much of a future in education. But again, that, that could have been a secure trade for for someone like Knight Donald. Um, but also his two sisters had, had married two firemen in uh, and had moved to London. Uh, I don't know how that came around. I don't know whether the two firemen had <laughs> been to Scotland and met or the girl, uh, the two sisters had gone to London and met them there. But they both married uh, firemen and had children. Sister Mary, her, her husband, Peter, died in 18, uh, early 1867. Uh, and again, unfortunately, she was pregnant and, and gave birth to Donald's niece, Petra Shear. Um, and Donald went to London quite soon after and stayed with um, the, the second sister. Now, I don't know whether, as I say, Donald just gave up, turned his back on a uh, educational career, or he went to London to support the family, which I suspect may have been the case. Um, he, he got a job quite quickly in uh, the offices of a city clerk, um, just as a general clerk, nothing, nothing too strenuous, but again, some degree of intelligence was uh, required. But the interesting thing is that that his employer, John Mickle, would later write that he knew, he'd known of Donald Swanson for a number of years. And I suspect, although I haven't found any evidence, that John Mickle was related in some way to Robert Mickle, who was Donald's tutor at the school back in Thurso. So um, John Mickle, he, he was in his late 50s at this time. Uh, he, he'd been working in London for quite some time. He was from um, Manchester. I think it rather he was Scott. Who'd, who'd made a home in uh, Manchester, uh, and he decided to sort of close the business and retire, move back to Lancashire um, in the March of 1868. And Donald had a choice then, you know, did he move back to Thurzo and resume a teaching career, or did he look for work in London? Uh, and he, he literally picked up the, that day's newspaper and looked in the situation's vacant uh, column and saw an advert from the Metropolitan Police. And just literally that day, just just wrote a letter of application, um, and that was the start of his career. Mm. Mm. So let's continue stepping forward in his career. Maybe talk about a couple of significant moments for policing London after the time when Donald had joined. Um, I'm especially thinking of the turf fraud scandal of mm -hmm. 1877 and the trial of the detectives. Um, what were the consequences for the reputation of the police in London and and the structure of the police force even. And, and what, was, uh, what was Donald Swanson doing at the time of the turf fraud scandal? Well, the turf fraud was a, a long-running scam in which a London gang committed a fraud on a rich French widow. They pretended to be honest bookmakers and promised her guaranteed winnings on horse races. And it went on for some months, and the gang slowly encouraged her to send more money until her solicitor discovered she sent uh, £10,000, which was the equivalent of more than half a million pounds today. You think she would have realised long before that point that <laughs> uh, the money she was sending wasn't guaranteeing the same amount of income. But Superintendent Frederick Williamson of the detective department sent his best men to investigate, but for some reason the gang always seemed to be one step ahead and avoided arrest. They were eventually captured and sent to prison, but one of them then wrote to the government revealing the reason they'd been so difficult to arrest 
was that the detectives had been bribed to warn them when the police were getting close. Three detectives from the department and one corrupt solicitor uh, were put on trial and found guilty, as you say, in 1877. And the result was that the detective department of Scotland Yard was completely disbanded and replaced by a new system called the Criminal Investigation Department, or the CID. All of the detectives who'd served in the old department that had not been arrested were placed on three months probation and had to prove they could be trusted. But luckily for Donald, he'd only been appointed to detectives two weeks before the discovery of the turf fraud, so he could not have been involved in the cover-up by the corrupt detectives. While there's no evidence he was in any way less than honest, had he joined six months earlier, it might have been difficult to resist the large amount of regular money on offer in the form of bribes. But as it was, um, as one of the first new officers of the new CID, he was one of the new wave of young detectives who helped restore the reputation of the department following the scandal. Do we know what his role was in uh, reforming that that CID after the scandal? Well, there were um, around that time there were in the detective department before the fraud uh, was discovered. There were, I think, just just a dozen detectives, and they covered the whole of London. But um, Don, Donald was working, I think, in uh, Plasto Station when he took his de- uh, detective examinations. Um, became a sergeant but of course at that time there was no detective departments within each of the divisions so if you became a detective you basically you moved to Scotland Yard so he became detective sergeant and moved and moved there but um, the first the first sort of two or three weeks I'm sure he was just finding his feet while the um, detectives were waiting for trial there was a notorious forger called called himself Captain George which I think is a fantastic name of how you wouldn't be suspicious of someone introducing themselves as Captain George uh, and to try and con- swindle you out of your money, I think would be quite quite unusual. But he eventually was arrested, um, recognised by Swanson on a surveillance with another detective called Frederick Shaw. Uh, and they, they followed him going to a fence uh, to basically pawn or, or change the uh, the bonds that, he'd, that Captain George had stolen. And he was, he was well wanted all around Europe. Eventually they caught him, and it was quite an interesting uh, example in Swanson's... Um, personal memoranda where he writes about the arrest of Captain George and when they try to take him to Scotland Yard they call a, a passing cab and they sort of wrestle him in and he's, he's sat between the two of them and they're just having a bit of a chat and, and suddenly Captain George becomes very violent and uh, tries to dip this piece of paper out of his pocket which has got his confirmation of his address and his name and all those details which obviously would have secured his conviction but he tries to uh, shove the paper into his mouth to try eating the evidence. And Swanson's grabbing one arm and Shaw's grabbing the other, and they're wrestling as the cab's rattling along towards Scotland Yard. Uh, I think Shaw gets bitten for his trouble, and, and uh, Swanson tries dragging the paper out of his mouth. Uh, but they do they do get him to court, and he is arrested and convicted. And I think there's someone from uh, Switzerland has come over from the Swiss police, and, and they taken away to be tried for um, crimes over there. But that was one of the, probably one of the first cases that Swanson was involved with once he became a detective. So, again, different sort of work. Rather than being a police constable or, or sergeant where they'd be sent by someone to uh, arrest someone, he, he was the one that was doing the investigation and conducting the surveillance. Mm. Mm. And then a few years later, we get to another volatile period in London policing that ends up, again, changing the structure and, and I believe leads to the formation of Special Branch, um, yep. or what eventually becomes Special Branch. Can you describe uh, the Fenian bombing campaign of the 1880s and, and what role Donald Swanson would have had as a member of CID at the time? 
Well, the Fenian bombing campaign started in 1881, and it lasted for four years. Uh, there was a previous campaign in the late 1860s, uh, and again, they were trying to um, establish Irish independence. But in uh, the 1860s, um, heads of state and other notable people were attacked in an attempt to highlight the campaign. But the 1880s, they, they, were, they were a little bit more direct in that they realised that if they targeted landmarks around, around London and, and elsewhere around the UK, that they'd, they'd instil fear in the public and achieve uh, an audience with the government. Um, and in the 1880s, there were 19 bombs exploded in Britain 11 in London. And these were places such as Scotland Yard itself was attacked. There were, there were bombs put around the base of Nelson's Column, which failed to explode. Uh, London Underground saw four um, explosions. Uh, and it's quite interesting because obviously in the UK, this is something that happened quite a lot in the 70s with the IRA, similar sort of thing. Um, mm. But in terms, of, in terms of Swanson's involvement, he'd been in the CID for five years and he'd built a reputation as a discreet and shrewd officer uh, he'd been well known for his arrest of the railway murder personally for him, Mapleton, in 1881. And he'd been entrusted with delicate investigations involving the aristocracy. And at this time, he was taken under the wing of Superintendent Williamson, um, who was uh, incidentally quite um, an ill man. He was greatly regarded by all the police officers and the public and the press. But he obviously wasn't very well and, and was perhaps looking for a younger detective that he could act as a mentor to. And that seems to have been sponsored. So the, the two officers worked together quite, on a quite a number of investigations. And in both the Fenian campaign and later the Bloody Sunday riots in Trafalgar Square, they worked together looking at the overall picture rather than individual incidents, and thereby piecing together a direction for the investigation. And that's exactly what happened later on in the Ripper case, when Swanson was appointed by the Commissioner Charles Warren to lead the investigation from Scotland Yard. Yeah, let's talk about Charles Warren a little bit. Uh, can you briefly describe uh, who he was and his career leading up to, to 1886 and then, and then to 88? Um, how would you describe Warren's relationship to the various players in London policing and governance? You know, what defined his approach to policing as commissioner? Well, Warren had enjoyed a hugely successful military career, and he was a skilled surveyor and archaeologist. Um, he had served in Gibraltar, the Palestine, South Africa, and was in Egypt when Home Secretary Hugh Childers wrote to him offering the position of Commissioner of the Met. He was wanted to take the place of the existing uh, Commissioner, Sir Edmund Henderson, who'd been popular since his appointment in 1868, but in recent years had grown out of touch with the growing force in his own men. When a riot took place in 1886 and the Met badly bungled its response, Henderson was forced to resign. And Childers had met Warren four years earlier and was obviously impressed with his no-nonsense attitude. He was exactly the man that Childers thought was needed to restore public order in a time of riots and to bring the Met back into shape. And, in, and when Warren was appointed, he immediately brought an increased drill training to get the bobbies in the beat in better shape. He wrote to the government asking for better uniform and boots because he realised from his military past that the men needed to be equipped as best as possible so Warren increased the fitness and the efficiency of the uniformed officers and effectively moulded them into a kind of army. He left the detective department to his assistant commissioners, uh, and his appointment was well received at first, but problems began when Childers lost his post as Home Secretary following a general election, and a man named Henry Matthews was appointed. And whereas Warren had joined Childers' backing, right from the start, the commissioner would be unsure whether he could rely on Matthews for support. Mm. How many uh, officers in the 
police command structure had done foreign service like like Warren had. You know, you said he was in Egypt. Uh, how common was it for soldiers returning from overseas to take a post in one of London's police forces? And and did Warren have an influence on that? I, as you mentioned, he brought a, a different kind of attitude, discipline, drilling, equipment um, to the London police forces. But did he have any change uh, in recruitment as well? Well, the senior posts in the Met, right from the start, were usually filled by the military or legal men who had never served in the police. And the first commissioners actually were Charles Rowan, who'd fought in the Napoleonic Wars and at Waterloo, and Richard Mayne, who was a barrister. Mayne's eventual replacement, Edmund Henson, who we just spoke about, was lieutenant colonel in the British Army. And all the assistant commissioners were also military men, because it was generally believed that this was required to maintain discipline over the rank and file police officers. And so the highest rank that someone like Swanson could achieve through promotion was superintendent. And this, this was not something that Warren or any other commissioner really had a control over. That was a home office policy. Um, it wasn't for many years until in, into the 20th century when that started to change. So what, although Warren gladly accepted the offer as a commissioner, it was never something that he intended to continue uh, forever, shall we say. He knew it was only basically to bring the Met back into shape and then he'd return to his military career, which obviously mm-hmm. he did later. Was was that also true for the for constables and kind of the bobbies on the beat? Where, where were they being recruited from? You mentioned earlier farmers and, and that kind of thing, but was there a more general way to describe the backgrounds of, of those officers? Yeah, well, the, the, the constables that were um, invited or, or, uh, or, or would apply to, to join the police, where they'd always start at the bottom and generally uh, they'd have three months training after they after they'd, they'd joined up. Um, they'd have to be physically examined and then they'd have a, a very rudimentary educational test. Uh, and the reason for that really was that the, the um, shall we say, the more physical applicants who were laborers or um, farm workers, people that were used to working outdoors would become exceptional uh, bobbies on the beat because they were used to the rigors of the physical demands. You know, they'd be walking out eight or nine hours a day um, nonstop around, around the streets. Whereas, um, People that would apply, you know, like Swanson, Little Child, other um, officers who obviously had had a um, degree of education or showed some signs of um, intelligence when they had this rudimentary test, they were usually placed into A Division, which was Westminster, um, not in Scotland Yard straight away, although Scotland Yard was on uh, A Division itself. Uh, there were other police stations in A Division, in, uh, yeah, and um, Swanson was serving at King Street. And this was really like the, what they'd call the pool uh, or the reserve of officers so that when extra help was needed, they'd have this sort of intelligent core, if you like, of um, of police constables. Um, and you'd find that in those early years, the constables that would ha- had been more of a physical background would remain on, div- on division really throughout their careers. They may get promoted to sergeant, but they would serve their 20, 25 years in the same streets. Whereas the the, um, the more intelligent officers, or educated officers, would be moved around, they'd, they'd become the detectives and work their way up um, in that way, eventually making their way to Scotland Yard in the main. Mm. Mm. And you mentioned uh, that there was that things got more difficult for Charles Warren at the top as commissioner uh, when Childers leaves the Home Office and Matthews comes in. Um, and then as we'll go forward, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about, about some of that <laughs> conflict between Warren and uh, as commissioner and Matthews as home secretary. 
do we know about how Swanson, as a member of the CID, would have been involved or maybe stayed uninvolved from the kind of politics and uh, arm wrestling that would have happened in the leadership? Well, it's very difficult to say because those sort of um, opinions don't appear anywhere in, in Swanson's personal recollections. I was a little bit dis- disappointed, uh, although not surprised, to be honest, when Neville Swanson was giving me these con- number of boxes with all the uh, the notepads and, and private um, documentation. I was hoping that I'd find like a, a, a secret diary that not necessarily talked about the, his work on the Ripper or anything like that, but would reveal some of his more of his personal feelings about some of the officers he worked with. Um, there's nothing at all about, about Warren Anderson or, or anyone else of the, the, uh, the colleagues, which I'm sure we talk about a little later. So although I suspect that um, Swan, Swanson would have recognized that, that Warren was working on hard on behalf of his men to get you know, the, the better um, equipment, the better uh, pension uh, plans, that sort of thing. Uh, there's no there's no incidences anywhere to to say how Swanson felt about that. I suspect he just supported his boss, who who he recognised, as I said, was doing his best for uh, his employees, which were obviously the officers. Hmm. Were there other things you did find, maybe not comments about his colleagues, but uh, other aspects of his personal documents or the reminiscences of his family that give you a picture of his kind of personality and, and opinions about other things? Well, uh, again, not necessarily in terms of opinions, but certainly an insight into his into his character. I mean, on, on his professional, on the face of it, on his professional side, he was just very firm but fair and methodical in his work and everyday manner. He seems to be a modest guy who didn't seek out the limelight. Um, and, and in fact, to be honest, he would be horrified to learn there would have been a book written about him. <laughs> um, but there's there's one ledger which. Um, I think he he was writing his cases in the uh, mid to late eighteen seventies, and up until perhaps eighteen eighty two, when he really sort of took on some um, delicate cases, where he's a little bit more um, forthright in, in his thoughts on the work there. And there's there's one case in the book which I talk about where um, a lady, should we say, of a of a, of a uncertain background, um, had a, almost became the Duchess of Somerset. Um, through through marriage, um, and and it's just like an, an amazing story in that it was just started off as a fraud where there's pages stolen from a baptism um, register in in a West End um, church, um, and and the Duke of Somerset's uh, solicitors look at it and they realise that the dates have been altered, uh, and when Swan- Swanson's called in by the actually by the uh, the vicar of that church you know, wondering why the uh, pages have been stolen. It doesn't take long for Swanson to work out that the pages haven't been stolen as a any sort of um, uh, memento or anything like that. So he, he speaks to the, uh, the solicitors who finds out this sort of forged uh, document there um, and then really starts looking into this lady, um, uh, Mrs. Mrs. St. Moore, her married name was, Lillian Stanhope was, a, was a mar- uh, uh, her maiden name. Uh, it turns out that she's li- lived a, a completely bizarre life from a showgirl in Liverpool who worked as a notorious prostitute. Um, bigamous marriages, illegitimate children, all sorts of things going on in the background there. Um, uh, and, and as I said, Swanson, he was, he was almost beside himself in this ledger. As he, write, he writes the case up. Um, and then he, lo- he, he looks at the, uh, right at the end, 
Um, she was about to be arrested, but she, she persuaded her doctor to say, that, well, she's pregnant, so you can't do anything until the baby's been born. And it took 10 months before they realized that it was another, <laughs> another fraud um, on that. But in the meantime, the Duchess of Somerset um, used her influence to, to stop any any arrest or, or any conviction of um, Lillian St. Moore. So uh, Sw Swanson recognises what's gone on, and he does writing. He's Again, you've got to remember these are personal comments. He didn't, I'm sure he'd been horrified to know that anyone would read these. He, he's saying it's a disgraceful um, blocking of, of justice. Um, th this this woman is is complete so-and-so. Uh, -and -so. <laughs> um, but that that's... Probably, you know, that's the only sort of uh, instances where he's got any opinion that's not just, you know, the the policeman in him just writing things down in a matter of fact way. Mm -hmm. Past studies of the Whitechapel murders that focus on the police have explored the roles of of Charles Warren, of course, the commissioner, uh, Frederick Aberline, who had that career in Whitechapel and H Division and then is brought back because he's so familiar with it to do the investigation. Uh, you know, it's covered Anderson. Um, why has Donald Swanson's role often been overlooked in previous work about the Whitechapel murders? Well, I think until the Swanson marginalia was discovered in the 1980s, um, Swanson's involvement in the Ripper investigation was virtually unknown. You know, obviously, he's, he's, if you look at the, the police uh, files that were opened in the 1970s uh, to, the, to the public, um, and then, even then it was controlled. He, he just appears as, a, as an officer who's written some reports, um, as many other officers have written reports. You don't really realise how much of a central figure he was. But the marginalia um, was discovered um, alongside... Um, in, this, in the family archives, alongside a memorandum written by Charles Warren, which appoints Swanson to lead the investigation from Scotland Yard. Um, and before these discoveries, the policemen attracting most attention um, were those who the newspapers reporters of 1888 could access, um, such, as you say, such as Whitechapel detectives Abilene and Reed. Um, the newspaper reporters would obviously be going around Whitechapel and they'd know from H Division who'd be working on the case. Um, and I think combined... That combined with a blanket ban on not speaking to reports from Scotland Yard, Swanson's name hardly appears in any newspapers from 1888. And as a result, the older books on the Ripper uh, don't some don't even mention him at all. And it's not really until the discovery of the marginalia and the memorandum that his role has been recognised and re-evaluated, and his position in the investigation is now understood. In 1888, James Monroe hands over the CID to Robert Anderson. Uh, who were these two men, and what were the circumstances of that transfer of the role in CID? Well, James Monroe had expected to be appointed director of the CID following the departure of Charles uh, Howard Vincent, um, but the position was changed to become assistant commissioner um, rather than director of the CID. Monroe had to report to Commissioner Edmund Henderson instead of director of the Home Office, as Vincent had done. Uh, and Monroe then thought he would replace Henderson as commissioner when he was when he resigned in 1886, only to see Charles Warren appointed. Um, and as a result, there was constant friction between the two for the 18 months they worked together. Robert Anderson had been employed at Scotland Yard for several years as an advisor on Fenian matters, and he was a friend. He became a friend of Monroe, uh, and the two worked together on the Fenian bombing campaign in the early 1880s. And by the summer of 1888, Monroe had, had enough of his own battles with Home Secretary Henry Matthews as well as Charles Warren and resigned. 
And Anderson replaced him as assistant commissioner, primarily because Matthews knew he was one of the few officers who had worked with Warren. So there are a few aspects of this case that brought the police in for criticism. (laughs) Uh, Maybe more than a few. But uh, one of the aspects that that drew particular fire for, you know, uh, reading the, the newspapers of the time, you see harsh criticism for um, absentee leadership. And uh, one of those officers that we've just been talking about, Robert Anderson, uh, he was absent from office on the day that Marianne Nichols is killed. And he continues a month-long sick leave the day after Annie Chapman is killed. Um, can you describe the CID without him, uh, with him not present, how would the office have functioned? Well, there's quite, quite a good alibi for Anderson there. Maybe he should be put forward as a suspect, actually. Um, and Anderson, as you said, he was, he was absent for quite a, you know, probably the core of the um, early investigation, really. But it's interesting that in his memoirs, he makes it sound as if the CID couldn't cope without him. And the department was demoralized by Monroe's departure. But in reality, the CID was in, was in pretty good shape. Uh, the senior officers such as Swanson, Nabiline and Littlechild had all worked their way up the ranks and were vastly experienced. And they certainly were professional enough to continue their work despite, despite the departure of their boss and the absence of Anderson. Uh, certainly, when it, when it comes to October, they managed to organise and carry out a, a, a detailed house-to-house in search in Whitechapel while Anderson was away. So I, I think that um, it was more of an issue for the press. It was, an, it was an opportunity for them to bash the police for not catching the killer. Um, what was Anderson doing? He, he was away. Warren, uh, in, in the early days, was also on a holiday, so there was no leadership at the top. Um, but certainly the officers on the ground who were doing the work, and at Scotland Yard, such as Swanson, were were working flat out. Um, you know, you can look at the reports in the... Uh, official police files to see you know certainly work was going ahead there um when anderson came back obviously he resumed control or took control of the cid for probably for the first time um and and then almost made it known that you know now i'm back in charge everything is going to be okay um but yeah i I think that the 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 main problem for with anderson being away was was for the the press and they're probably quite delighted to be honest that he wasn't there because it gave them a reason to uh to give the police a bit of a bit of a bashing. Hmm. When, when Donald Swanson was put in charge of the Whitechapel murders on September 15th, how did he then proceed with the investigation? Uh, what do we know about his involvement with the police efforts over the next month? Uh, what did that look like? Well, I think when, um, when Warren wrote that memorandum appointing Swanson to the overall, investi- uh, invest- overall charge at Scotland Yard, um, he made he made a comment saying that um, I found a, a most important letter was sent to division yesterday without his seeing it. This is quite an error and should not happen again. And all the papers in central office on the subject of the murder must be kept in his room. And immediately from that, and, he, and in fact backdating some of the reports, every, every report and telegram on the investigation was submitted to Swanson at Scotland Yard. So you can imagine that he spent a good few weeks reading and digesting all the reports that had been generated um, before his appointment, you know, going right back to um, Emma Smith and Martha Tabram before the murder of Polly Nichols. Um, all the reports that had come from H Division 
in Whitechapel and J Division of Bethnal Green, who had been involved in the Marianne Nichols investigation. And it was only really once he'd done this that he could identify potential links and lines of investigation. Um, and, and a good indication of how much work there was for Swanson on that was, was in a report which we'll speak of later on, I'm sure, where he writes that by the mid-October, almost a thousand dockets existed in addition to the newspaper, the numerous uh, police and newspaper reports. And they all had to be read and digested by Swanson. So I think it was probably to start with a, a massive uh, and ongoing, of course, a, ma- a massive uh, project for him to read and, and understand and assimilate everything that was going on um, up up to that time. Because, you know, there probably there probably was a good three or four weeks of reporting before he was appointed on the 15th of September. Mm. Mm. Can you describe what a day in the life would have looked like for him? Uh, you know, is he going from his home to Scotland Yard, staying there all day and then going home again? And what would he do when he was there in the office with those mounds of paper? Uh, what, what did a day in his life look like when he takes on the investigation? Well, at, at this time, uh, Swanson and his family were, were living in um, South London. Um, I would imagine knowing the route, it would have been uh, probably a cab ride in each day and, and, and each evening. But we, we, we're quite fortunate because in 1889, there was a department committee uh, investigating the police um, work into the Ripper investigation and looking at the likes of expenses and pensions and that sort of thing. And Swanson was one of the officers that was called to give evidence. And he does actually describe his working day in between September and December 1888. It's quite, quite a um, heavy workload. He, he said... I had to be at the office at half past eight in the morning. Then I had to read through all the papers that had come in, which took me until 11 p.m. and sometimes between one and two in the morning. Then I had to go to Whitechapel and see the officers, generally getting home between two and three a.m. So, you, you know, you can imagine that there's, there's something like about 14 hours minimum of just literally just reading the, the reports and statements which are coming each day. Um, that, that's, an enorm, that's an enormous amount of, uh, of work to you know, for one officer to do. Uh, and then once he'd done that, as he said, he had to go to Whitechapel and see those H Division officers. And after uh, Cabernetos was killed and the city police came in, liaising with those uh, officers as well. Um, they'd obviously make their, uh, they'd obviously make their um, plans and progress reports for the next day um, when it looked as though it'd be the same all, same all over again. So, yeah, mm. very intense period for those, uh, those, uh, two or three months there for him. Can you describe the the Dear Boss letter? What effect would that letter have on the investigation when it arrived in the press office? And would Swanson have also been involved in sorting letters like this as they came in? Yeah, well, the, the Dear Boss letter was received by the Central News Agency on the 29th of September. Uh, and it was almost certainly written by a journalist, either Tom Bulling of the Central News Agency itself, or American Harry Dam, who, were, who was a reporter for the Star. Uh, Star was um, a new paper, but probably the first tabloid newspaper. But it was enjoying an enormous um, early sales because it, it recognised that the Ripper investigation or all the murders themselves were um, generating huge, huge sales. So they were going out of their way to um, offer sensationalist headlines and, and, and reporting style. So it's quite likely that the, 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 the Dear Boss letter, which first gave the name Jack the Ripper, was written by a journalist, because obviously you can imagine it would draw enormous uh, uh, readership. Um, 
And in fact, Robert Anderson would like write in his memoirs, he was tempted to disclose the identity of the journalist. Uh, and Swanson himself said, uh, who was known to all heads of CID. But although they, they came to realise that it was a hoax, in the absence of any other clues, a facsimile was published in the national press to see if the handwriting would be recognised, with the inevitable result that hundreds of copycat letters were sent to the Met and also the city police, all of which had to be followed up and discounted, wasting valuable police time. Uh, and certainly Swanson, I'm sure these were, although it doesn't categorically state it, I'm sure these letters were sent to Swanson at Scotland Yard along with all the other documents. And so each day he'd have to go through uh, these hoax letters, which I'm sure they must have known at the time. But looking at pertinent points, is there a name, is there an address, is there something that we can send a, a constable to to investigate? Um, I mean, that was probably one of the biggest mistakes that the police made in the investigation was publishing that letter um, because it just ended up wasting so many police hours and, and directing um, work that could should have been done on, on a more uh, direct basis. Mm. You mentioned earlier that even with Anderson gone, the CID was able to put together a major police mobilization in Whitechapel in October. Uh, would you describe that operation for us? Yeah, th this took place on the 3rd of October, 1888, a um, couple of days after the uh, double event murder of Listride and Catherine Eddowes. Um, and I do wonder whether the plan had been mooted be before that, but they certainly took, put it into place on the 3rd of October. And Whitechapel was flooded with police in plain clothes, and a house-to-house -house search was carried out. And to give an idea of the scale of that operation, uh, the police issued some 80,000 leaflets to the, the households and lodging houses in the area appealing for information. And in addition to the residents of the area, more than 2,000 people who were staying at the common lodging houses were questioned. An assistant commissioner, Robert Anderson, would later write that during my absence abroad, the police made a house-to-house -house search for the killer, investigating the case of every man in the district whose circumstances were such he could go and come and get rid of his bloodstains in secret. The conclusion we came to was that he and his people were certain low-class Polish Jews, for it was a remarkable fact that people of that class in the East End will not give up one of their number to Gentile justice. So I think that the um, they they must have had a bit of a an understanding of what they were looking for. Um, I, I, I think it stretches the imagination that they would send... Um, not only Whitechapel police, but they drafted in officers from other divisions to assist with this. Um, and they, they questioned every every household, every resident, um, searched the rooms. As, as I said, they, they questioned all the lodgers. They, I, I find it's a bit unusual that they would have just done that not knowing what to expect. They probably had a little a bit of an, under, an idea or a hope, perhaps, of what they might uncover. And it seems, according to Anderson... Um, that 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 did that did come to pass. The the eighteen eighties offered this police force that's doing all this work, trying to come up with evidence, um, little by way of the forensic techniques that detectives use today. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, what were some of the the cutting edge techniques that were that were new at the time, that were considered in the course of collecting and analyzing evidence in Whitechapel? Uh, I think this is this is probably one of the. Uh, major problems that the police had there were virtually no forensics they couldn't tell the difference between human and animal blood let alone uh, uh, a blood type um obviously the 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 idea of, of fingerprinting had been discovered 
Um, but it hadn't been adopted, wasn't adopted to the police for like another 15 years after the Whitechapel murders. So at this time, there was, there was virtually no um, evidence that could be gleaned from clues, um, that sort of thing. Uh, I think the only clue, uh, real clue that the police found in the whole investigation was the portion of Caffinetto's apron, which was found beneath the writing, the wall writing in Gawson Street. Um, and that was found to match. That was a torn off piece of paper that's found to match uh, the, the piece she, she was wearing. And although that had blood stains and fecal matter on, there was there was no way that they could test those stains against any, anything else if that, that they might have found um, elsewhere in their search. So the police were almost um, reliant on, on informers, um, identification parades, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on, um, that sort of thing, or, or almost sort of catching catching someone red red handed. Um, it was it was you know incredibly tricky uh, to to find someone in in this respect. Um, Swanson in his in his career up to this point had had conducted a couple of uh, not quite not strictly legal, um, almost entrapment things where he he he'd, he'd, he'd put put together um, a scenario where uh, a suspect would be confronted with with um, either a witness or or uh, a victim of a crime. Um, such, such as a robbery, and then they'd identify him that way. So it, there, there wasn't much they could do in terms of uh, uh, forensic techniques. It, it was very sort of rud- rudimentary, and they were reliant on confessions, uh, identifications, that sort of thing. Mm. What did the press and Whitechapel locals think about this police mobilization that flooded their their neighborhoods, their streets, their homes with officers? I think it's quite interesting that you know you could imagine that the, the some of the public, certainly the the Jewish immigrant population, would have been mistrusting of the police. You know, there there was certainly um, locally there was a there was that sort of feeling, typical British Empire feeling. Well, he couldn't couldn't have been an Englishman. It must have been must have been an immigrant who's done these horrible crimes. So you can understand that the Jewish population would have been perhaps um, wary of the police, not wanting to help. But in in reality, they they were um, very supportive and um, cooperated with the police such, such to the degree that that Charles Warren uh, l- later wrote an open letter in the Times thanking the residents of Whitechapel for the goodwill shown to the officers, um, who obviously had to carry a delicate, very delicate duty, but um, had to do the work. Um, but the the public themselves uh, were were understanding of of the the need to do this work. And seemed to be very, very um, helpful in assisting the officers. Uh, and, and regarding the press, you know, as, as I said with the Star a moment ago, you know, they they were looking for an angle that would sell a newspaper. Um, and and I think whenever they saw the police or the police appeared to be doing nothing, they'd be lambasted in the press and saying they didn't have a clue. And when something had come along, there might be a lead or or, or some obvious activity by the police and they could report that um because the readers obviously would be looking for the, the catch off on latest of the uh, of the police investigation and the hunt for the killer so the press the press were actually supportive of the house to house search as well whether that was their personal opinion or whether as i said it was more a case to get get some um, juicy headlines and sell more copies i think that's probably the case uh you mentioned that if swanson was known at all in the early years after the murders, it might have been from a few reports that he wrote. 
Would you describe the report that Swanson filed with the Home Office on October 19th? Yeah, well, the, shortly after the house-to-house search, the Home Office demanded a report or an update on the ongoing investigation. And Assistant Commissioner Robert Anderson was annoyed at the timing of, the, of this request. Um, you know, he felt, he felt there was more important matters for Swanson and the other officers to be attending to. Um, but nevertheless, the report that Swanson wrote dated the 19th of October uh, was obviously apprised the Home Office at the time. But, but for us researchers, it's invaluable because it gives the clearest picture of the police investigation um, into the murders um, at that point. Uh, and Swanson details each of the murders, going right back to Elizabeth Stride, Martha Tabram, um, Marianne Nichols, and, and Annie Chapman, and as well as in police investigation at that point, um, and gave details of the house-to-house search we just heard about. Um, and Swanson writes that more than 300 people were investigated, uh, as well as 76 butchers and slaughtermen, and all the sailors who were on at that point on board ships uh, in the Thames or, or at the various East End docks. Mm. And he also mentions uh, that a number of people were detained, um, something like 80, I think. Um, how many of those 80 who were detained were, were questioned thoroughly, and how involved would Swanson have been in something like interrogations and those evidence-gathering conversations, or was that done by other officers? Well, I think all, all 80 uh, of these people that were detained would have been questioned to some degree. You know, some easily dismissed and others needed to be interrogated more closely. Um, and details of the suspects would have been held in the official suspect file at Scotland Yard, but that's been missing since the early 1970s before the, uh, the Met police file on the Whitechapel murders was opened to the researchers. So we have no idea who conducted the actual interviews in, in the main Swanson was based at Scotland Yard, and he wrote in that 19th of October report that statements were taken at various stations around London, and the vast majority of suspects obviously were local Whitechapel men, so it's likely that interviews were conducted by HDV detectives and Aberline on secondment there. Uh, it was only when James Sadler, uh, Thomas James Sadler was arrested for the murder of Francis Coles in 1891 do we know for certain that Swanson himself conducted an interview with a suspect. So, so there's, there's a chance he may have been involved with some of those 80 or more uh, interrogations, but the likelihood is that they, they were conducted by local officers at the uh, stations where they were held. Um, <laughs> another document that is significant in uh, the Whitechapel case is the one that Charles Warren gets published in Murray's magazine <laughs> in November, The Police of the Metropolis. Um what was the substance of that article? How was it received? What was the what was the fallout after that hit the the public readership? Well, it's it's interesting because Warren's article in itself was harmless enough. It just just been about police administration. didn't didn't give any uh, secrets away or, or or anything that uh, um, may be deemed to, to make it a a, um, a horrific publication. And it was quite actually was, was well received by newspaper reviewers and commentators at the time. But unsurprisingly, um, Warren ran foul of Home Secretary Henry Matthews yet again, who wrote to remind Warren that he'd broken a rule that prohibited civil servants from publicly discussing matters relating to their documents. And for Warren, this was the final straw. He wrote on the 8th of November to Warren, um, uh, to Matthews rather, resigning his post and, and said that. If we'd have known there was a there was a um, 
a policy that he couldn't write, couldn't write anything about his, uh, his job, then he wouldn't have taken the position in the first place. Um, but it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was just a case of Matt Matthews having another chance to needle Warren. Uh, and incidentally, um, Warren, Warren resigned on the 8th of November, 1888, which was coincidentally Mary Kelly's last day. She was murdered in the early hours of the, of the 9th of November. And when news of Warren's resignation broke on the day of the inquest into Melly, uh, Kelly's murder, the two have been, have been linked and, and to some, they, they still are linked. Uh, Warren resigned um, because of uh, Kelly's, Kelly's murder. Um, and in fact, just two weeks later, Warren's replacement was announced. It was his old, his old nemesis, James Monroe. Uh, and interestingly, the respected newspaper, the St. James Gazette, commented on Matthew's use of the legislation, saying advantage was taken of this incident to lead Sir Charles into what looks rather like a trap. So I think that's probably exactly what happened there. Mm. Mm. At the end of October, so just before we get to that point, uh, Robert Anderson had asked Dr. Thomas Bond to examine the medical evidence of the murders to that point. Um, why was Dr. Bond a trusted observer, and what did he conclude in a report that came out a few days after Warren's resignation? Each Met Police Division had one doctor who was appointed not only to look after the welfare of their police officers in that division, but also assisted when medical opinion was needed in cases of murder or suspicious death. And the divisional surgeon in Whitechapel was Dr. George Baxter Phillips, who appeared at various inquests giving medical evidence. Uh, and Dr. Thomas Bond was a divisional surgeon attached to a division of Scotland Yard. And so in such, he was not directly involved in the Whitechapel cases. But as he'd been involved in so many high-profile cases since being appointed in 1867, um, Anderson asked Bond on the 25th of October to examine the inquest reports on the four victims from Mary Ann Nichols to Catherine Eddowes. Um, but before he could do so, Mary Kelly was murdered and Bond was able to conduct a post-mortem himself, adding it to the inquest reports on the earlier victims. And in his report dated the 10th of November, Bond concluded that all five had been killed by the same hand, with the throat cut from left to right being the first attack, while the women were lying down. The mutilations were carried out after death, and he believed a murderer did not have anatomical knowledge, not even to the degree of a butcher. He said the knife was at, that commit, uh, carried out the mutilations was at least six inches long, with a sharp point such as a butcher's or a surgeon's knife. Mm. There's an interesting uh, bit of background to, to this, because uh, at the beginning of the year, at the beginning of 1888, there's some friction between Warren and Bond. Um, can you talk about Charles Warren's effort to push Bond out of police service at the beginning of the year? Well, I think um, as this is a very interesting um, little little backstory that perfectly illustrates what, what I was talking about right at the start about context. Um, because when I was doing the research for the book, I, I, I was looking for some information about divisional surgeons, um, their salaries, how long they've been appointed, that sort of thing. So there's a file at the National Archives which is titled Divisional Surgeons, Divisional Surgeons 1888. I thought that sounds perfect for what I'm looking for for, for the book. And when I read it, it was this series of correspondence between Warren and Bond and, and the chief surgeon at Scotland Yard, Alexander McKellar. Um, and it, 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 it's, it's completely bizarre, and, and it just gives this complete background, makes perfect sense for why um, 
Anderson asked Bond to, to carry out the report, um, which didn't seem to make any sense before. But um, the story was that, um, as always with Warren, he, he was looking to make changes to the Met to make it more efficient. And as the majority of, of the detectives lived away from Scotland Yard in L Division, which was south of the Thames, uh, where the new recruits were also based as they did their training, in early 1888, um, he moved their care to the divisional surgeons there, Dr. George Farr. Uh, when Bond discovered this, he complained, but he obviously had, had no choice. Um, and he resigned as a medical officer attached to the detective department and the commissioner's office on the 4th of October, 1888, and took the opportunity to confirm he'd prefer to be engaged on cases where medico-legal expertise was needed. And this is what prompted Anderson to give Bond to, to prepare his report. Would you describe a, a previous case or two that were settled for the police by examinations and reports from Dr. Bond in the years before? You mentioned he's attached to, to Scotland Yard and he's uh, uh, been such a helpful surgeon for them in the past. What were some of the cases that cemented his reputation in the years before that? Well, the, the one which um, springs to mind for obvious reasons for, for me is uh, in 1881 where he was called down to Brighton from Scotland Yard, which is probably the furthest he could get out of his jurisdiction. Uh, he was called down to Brighton to examine the body of a man found on the tracks in a railway arch, and it was not initially clear whether the cause of death was uh, that he'd been hit by a train or falling from a carriage, but Bond established that the man, uh, Mr. Frederick Gold, had been attacked on board the train and thrown from the carriage as it passed through the tunnel. And ironically, it was Donald Swanson who arrested the, uh, the killer, Percy Floyd Mapleton, so that, that was an example where, uh, not not to say that the local doctors or, or, or the local um, medical officials in Sussex um, jurisdiction where that where the body was found, interestingly, in that case, um, Wynne Baxter was the coroner, coroner at the time at East Sussex and he conducted the inquest into victim and eventual murderer. But that's not to say that those local doctors wouldn't have, have come to the same conclusion. But but there was a chance that they you know they may they may have concluded that it was um, a misadventure or or accidental death hit by the train and that would have been the end of that and and Lefroy Mapleton would have completely avoided be, being arrested and, and and executed as he did but um, Bond Bond was the uh, Scotland Yard specialist who who uh, found the, the cause of death the various uh, wounds on the body that could only have been caused by an attack um, within the carriage. So, yeah, that, that was that was one case which um, it was quite interesting because, as I say, Bond worked with Swanson and Wynne Baxter, and this was seven years before the Ripper uh, investigation. So what was the significance? When Bond writes that report you described earlier, the sharp knife, the, the cuts on the throat, um, pulling together all that medical evidence and, and processing it, for Robert Anderson, um, what was the significance of that report following uh, its release? Well, Bond suggested that the murderer was probably a middle-aged man, quite an inoffensive-looking and respectably dressed. He said he, he had eccentric tendencies and probably lived among people who knew of his character and had suspicions, but who would probably be unwilling to communicate these suspicions to the police. And the the mutilations indicated that the killer was driven by a sexual impulse. And Bond, this, re, this report is generally accepted as the first attempt at a profile of a serial killer. 
Um, but it's interesting that if it hadn't been for Charles Warren's insistence earlier in the year that Bond relinquish his workload, uh, as Scotland Yard, he might not have been asked to rewrite that report in the first place. So it's it's an interesting report, in an important report in terms of it gave the police perhaps for the first time an idea of the sort of man they, they should be looking for rather than the simple um, conclusion that, yeah, it's, it was someone with a knife who had um, some medical knowledge, which when Dr. Baxter Phillips was given his inquest testimony in the earlier cases, um, didn't give, he gave no further clues as to the type of um, man the killer was or, or any idea of his personality. So it, it, it was really important for, in terms of, not only in terms of criminal history, but also in terms of the investigation that the, the police finally had a, an idea of the, uh, the, the man they were looking for. And I think when we get uh, further down in, in the discussion, we'll be talking about um, Anderson's suspects and, and um, Swanson's description of what happened to him. We can see that that probably came from this this description by Bond as to the sort of man that the killer was. Mm. Do you think it was more helpful to have Baxter Phillips's reticence or to have Bond's speculative uh, conclusions? Um, do you mean do you mean for for us as researchers or for the police at the time? Uh, I, well, I'm thinking more of the police at the yeah. time. Uh, you know, is it better to have a clean slate or to have a, you know, something speculative like what Bond puts forward? I I think at the, at that at this at this point it, it's probably a case of how the investigation had proceeded because if if Bond had, um, for instance, been looking at the reports, if he'd have been the one which had conducted the post mortem and for the first inquest and given this information, um. I don't know if the police would have accepted it as readily as they did later on. Um, Baxter Phillips, certainly we've been reticent, as you say, with describing the injuries at the uh, at the inquest. That that certainly wasn't the case. You know, he gave that information freely to the to the police, and he was trying to keep it out of the out of the newspapers, really. But I, I don't know whether um, in those early days, if Baxter Phillips would have even formed an opinion as to the type of killer. I don't know whether he had that sort of approach that, that Bond did. Um, I think initially the police were sort of quite happy with what Baxter Phillips had, had, had told them. And this, you know, this is, this, this is uh, the sort of, uh, this is the sort of um, mutilations that have taken place or, or, or been inflicted. The police probably thought in those early days that they, they were going to quite, quite easily catch the killer. And it's interesting that the terminology of, of that Warren gave, in that memo appointing Swanson, he's referring to the murder of Annie Chapman, and, and he doesn't say, I'm appointing Swanson for the duration of these series of murders. He appoints Swanson for that one particular murder and mm. to take, obviously, in situ the, the previous cases. Um, and Swanson really carried on in that position as the um, the murders of Liz Stride and Catherine Eddowes and Mary Kelly happened, and subsequently in later years, Alice McKenzie, Francis Coles, Swanson stayed in that position, but I, I don't believe that um, Warren or any of the other police expected there may be more. Um, they probably thought, yeah, we, we, we can solve this with the um, tools that we have, inf medical information from Baxter Phillips, but certainly by the end of October, and they had no further information apart from what they may have uncovered at the house to house, 
at the start of the month. I think they were they were very grateful for Bond giving them this sort of information. Of course, it may have turned out to be completely uh, way of the way off the mark and, and not for helpful at all. But I think they were looking for um, help, any helpful guidance they they could have received at that point. So let's step a little further forward in time, considering other people who attempted to put together the massive evidence and come to some kind of official conclusion about it. Um, let's go to Melville McNaughton. Uh, who <laughs> was Melville McNaughton and what role did he have in the investigation or looking at the, looking at the results of the investigation? Well, McNaughton was a, was a friend of James Monroe, who ran his family's tea plantation in India, and they'd met when Monroe was a district judge there. He first attempted to get McNaughton into the Met when uh, Superintendent Frederick Williamson was ill, uh, but Warren blocked, blocked that move. And this is the reason why Monroe resigned as Assistant Commissioner Robert Anderson put in, put in his place. Uh, things changed, of course, when Warren resigned at the end of 1888. Monroe became Commissioner. McNaughton was appointed uh, Assistant Chief Constable supporting Williamson in June 1889 um, and replaced him in December 1890 when Williamson died. So they had the three friends together there, Anderson, Monroe and McNaughton. Um, and although he wasn't around at the time of the Rupert investigation of 1888, uh, McNaughton was quite actively involved in inquiries into subsequent murders in Whitechapel, such as Alice McKenzie and Francis Coles. Um, and in his autobiography, which is completely exaggerated, his role in everything, to be honest, um, but he, he he puts himself in the centre of, of things quite quite heavily there. But he, he I think it seems to have been that he was frustrated on the outside um, in 1888, wanting to be part of the investigation, but um, certainly certainly took uh, took a big involvement in things after his appointment. But he's probably better better known in the case for his 1894 memorandum in which he names the three suspects. Mm. Yeah, and it's sense for for investigators and historians and and those of us who are looking back at the case uh his member and his memorandum has at times been an influential document for understanding uh, as you say the police perspective um how was it received when it was first written and how much significance did it have especially before those police files were open in the 70s um mcnaughton wrote his memorandum as a result of the sun newspaper reporting uh, an exclusive that a man named Thomas Cutbush was Jack the Ripper. They'd found him in a lunatic asylum. Um, and the memorandum actually was never published, but it was it was probably prepared for internal use should there be an inquiry as a result of the son's claims. Um, so there's no record of the memorandum until it was discovered by author Robin O'Dell in the mid-1960s, misfiled in a, in a box at the public record office. So that that's the official version. Um mm. But there's the, uh, so that's dated February 1894. But there's there's a version which we call the Abercornway version. It it seems to be a draft um, written by McNaughton while he's preparing this official report, and that that was retained in the family, um, the McNaughton family, and made its way down to his daughter um, Christabel Abercornway, and I think it was a late 18 uh, 1950s rather 1959 that the the, um, the British television presenter and ripper author Daniel Farson um, was doing some research for um, a television program in 1959 and his friend said well would you like to meet my my mother who has um, the, the document written by 
of the father, Melvin McNaughton, which names three, three of the Jack the Ripper suspects. So you can imagine Daniel Farson was so delighted to, to have the opportunity to read these. And this is where um, the three names first came along. But um, Lady Abba Conway gave Farson permission to um, mention the discovery of this uh, Abba Conway version. It's along the condition that he didn't reveal any of the names because she felt that there may still be relatives or descendants of those three men that were still alive and, and may, may you know, take, take offence. Um, but it turned out the th three names were Druitt, who Farson put forward as the, uh, the number one suspect. Um, um, yeah, uh, Kosminski, which is interesting because that, that obviously supports uh, the name that Swanson came up with, and Michael Ostrog, who subsequent researchers have found that um, was a petty criminal, n not violent at all, although McNaught described him as such in the memorandum. Uh, and we sort of managed to discount him. Um, but it, what I find interesting about the McNaughton report is that he names the same five victims as the, the genuine Ripper, Ripper victims as Thomas Bond did his report. Um, and this is where we get the, the so-called canonical five victims from Marianne Nichols through to uh, Mary Kelly. And the, the victims before these five and afterwards are generally regarded as probably not by the Ripper, but that, that's certainly changing, certainly in the case of Martha Tabram. But uh, what's interesting about that is um, that I discovered during my research for the book that Bond's report was missing in 1894 when um, so, uh, 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 a Swiss doctor wrote to the Met asking for a report. It couldn't be found um, at this time. And this sort of coincides within, the, within two months of when McNaughton wrote his report. So I just have a I just have a feeling that perhaps McNaughton lifted that file from the report, um, from the official re uh, files to write his report, um, and then sort of put it back put it back at a later date. Um, so yeah, so that really was was um, in nineteen fifty nine. That was probably the first document that names a suspect um, before the um, official suspects file was accessed in the early nineteen seventies. Would you describe for us the arc of Donald Swanson's career in the years after 1888? In, uh, in 1888, early that year, Swanson had been appointed chief inspector on a temporary basis, um, and that's almost a probationary period, um, but it meant he was one of the top six detectives at Scotland Yard. He was made um, chief inspector permanent late uh, at the beginning of 1889, and in 1896, he was promoted to superintendent of the CID at Scotland Yard, uh, is the highest position he could attain. He could attain, um, and is effectively the top detective in in the country. He's reporting directly to the assistant commissioner Anderson, and then his replacement, Edward Henry, who was the man that put fingerprinting into the Met. Uh, Swanson retired in 1903, aged 55, and I do think that if the rules had been different at that time, he he might have achieved further promotions to assistant commissioner and possibly commissioner itself. Hmm. Thinking about another uh, major case that Swanson was involved in, would you describe the arrest and trial of Leander Jameson and the role that Donald Swanson played in those proceedings? The the uh, the Jameson raid, as as it was known, was was a very high profile diplomatic issue. Swanson uh, was was very proud of his his role in that, bringing Jameson and and the raiders to justice. 
I'll describe that in a moment. But I know that uh, Donald's grandson Jim always made special point that you know, this was a an international diplomatic situation that his grandfather had been involved in, um, bringing bring to a conclusion. But basically, it was um, it was a little later part of his career, but it was a good example of cooperation between multiple police forces and um, overseas extradition. Um, basically, in 1895, Diamond Magnet and British nationalist Cecil Rhodes, um, who had been basically annexing large areas of South Africa, um, had his eye on, on the South African Republic, which was a large independent country um, formerly known as the Transvaal, and it was governed by the President Paul Kruger. Uh, large quantities of gold had been discovered, in which thousands, which caused thousands of mainly British immigrants called outlanders who were tolerated by uh, Kruger thanks to the taxes they had to pay on any gold that they they uncovered. But Rhodes was envious and wanted this land, and he devised a plan whereby arms and money would be provided to the outlanders in order to provoke an armed uprising by these settlers, uh, with the result of the overthrowing of the South African Republic government. And an armed force of around 700 men under control of Dr. Leander Jameson was to be placed on the Transvaal border, ready to assist and support this insurrection. But things went badly wrong because Jameson badly ignored, uh, ignored orders to retreat. And the result was that more than 400 of his men were captured. President Kruger arranged for the prisoners to be transported to Britain. And the rank and file men were packed onto the steamer called the Harlot Castle. And they were met at Madeira by Scotland Yard's uh, Inspector Frank Frost, who was... Um, the officer that Swanson acted as a mentor to in the same way that Williamson had done to him. Frank Frost would eventually become superintendent actually after Swanson. But, um, Frost, Frost met uh, the ship at Madeira and took the details of more than 200 men before the boat resumed its voyage to Plymouth. And waiting for them there was Chief Inspector Swanson who took a roll call of, of all the men and boarded the train with Frost and the troops. And when they arrived at London, they were met by officers of the local elect F Division, who took them on to the onward journey. Jameson himself and the fellow officers arrived in London three days later, and they were met there by Swanson, who took them into his custody and they docked at Waterloo Pier, and then taken to Bow Street Magistrates Court, where they were brought up by Swanson and charged with engaging in unlawful military expedition against the South African Republic. The 13 prisoners were eventually tried a month later and found guilty, Jameson receiving 15 months imprisonment and the others short slightly shorter sentences but the ramifications of the failed raid were potentially disastrous because tensions between the british and the dutch who owned the transvaal simmered for several years culminated in the second boer war of 1899-1902 and this animosity was exploited by Karls of wilhelm ii who wrote to president kruger offering support when the contents of this telegram were reported in british newspapers the action was one of outrage, and relations between Germany and Britain deteriorated. Although uh, Wilhelm II later wrote to his grandmother, Queen Victoria, denying that his words were meant to stir a real feeling against the country, the incident was a beginning of friction between the two countries, which culminated in the First World War. So, you mentioned earlier that we also have the Swanson marginalia to discuss. Um, can you describe what this was and how it fits in with a pattern of, of what Donald Swanson, how Donald Swanson read uh, material and, and expressed his thoughts, and then maybe how that marginalia itself became public. 
uh, Donald Swanson died in 1924, and all his papers and documents and possessions passed to his widow, Julia. Uh, it's quite interesting that it, it became clear when I was looking through the um, surviving documentation, there wasn't a, a, an official bequest in a will or anything of any named items. The possessions literally just passed to the, to the next of kin. Uh, Julia, Julia in turn passed away in 1935, um, and the couple's daughters, Ada and Alice, inherited the possessions and took them out of London to a cottage where they, they lived together for the next 40 years. Um, in this um, pile of documents was a small library of crime books that Donald had, had collected. Um, and it, it was it was this, this, this pile of books that uh, Donald's grandson, Jim, Swanson, who was the nephew of the uh, of Ada and Alice, um, he basically uh, inherited those books when Alice died in 1980. So this this is more than 50 years after Donald died. Um, Jim cleared out the house um, for it to be sold and moved into his own home. And when he was looking through the books, because I had an interest in in his grandfather's criminal career or police career, I should say, rather than criminal career, <laughs> 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 he found. Uh, um, number of annotations in 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 several books actually um people tend to think that the swanson marginalia was the only incidence of donald swanson writing his thought his thoughts or corrections um and and some people have said well that's a bit strange why would you specifically only comment on that particular um case but it, it it's not it's not it's not the case there were several um examples of, of we'll call swanson marginalia um, but it was in um, Robert Anderson's autobiography, The Lighter Side of My Official Life, in which he talks about um, Jack the Ripper, Polish Jew suspect, um, that has some quite revealing annotations. Uh, and, and because Jim was so proud of his grandfather's work, he was he was 12 when Donald died, so he knew him quite well, and, and always said that um, right up till his death, at the age of 76, Donald retained all his mental faculties. His mind was as sharp as a rapier. Um, the one thing he did have was was a hand tremor, um, which you know obviously is like a, a a thing which happens to quite a lot of people as they get into this into their older age. But Jim decided he wanted to try and get some recognition for his grandfather's career. And in 1981, a few months after discovering the marginalia, he wrote to the Sunday newspaper, The News of the World, offering the information in the marginalia. And the newspaper sent their chief crime reporter, Charles Sandell, to interview Jim. Um, and we we did find um, research and then Keith Skinner um, found a draft of this of this uh, unused article, as it turned out, by Sandell in the files of the Crime Museum at Scotland Yard. So although there was a there was an article written, it, it didn't appear. And again, we, do, we don't really know why, but we, we can surmised that it was a time where the Yorkshire Ripper trial was happening, so that that obviously ran in the in the British press quite heavily. It was leading to the marriage of Prince Charles and Lady Diana. That took up a lot of column inches. So um, looking at the unused report um, story by Sandell, it, it just appears he couldn't find enough on the suspect to make it work into a story. So it wasn't really until the centenary of the Ripper murders were approaching that... Um, that in October 1987, Jim contacted a different newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, and a story was finally published, and it revealed the existence of the marginalia uh, to Ripper researchers and, and the world more widely.
Would you describe uh, the marginalia in a little more detail and, and how it influenced thinking about the Ripper murder since, since the centenary? What, what was the process for determining maybe that the marginalia was, was genuine and how seriously it should be taken? Um, I can ask that in one sentence, but I'm going to give the background into the, the marginalia. It's a, it consists of, a, as I said, a number of pencil annotations that Donald has written alongside the printed word in Anderson's book. And specifically on, on a couple of pages where Anderson writes about um, Jack the Ripper, the Whitechapel murders, and uh, um, the prime suspect, we'll call him. Anderson writes, I'll, I'll merely add here that the only person who ever had a good, good view of the murderer unhesitatingly identified the suspect the instant he was confronted with him, but refused to give evidence against him. And Swanson's written underneath in, in a purple pencil. And the, the reason I'm telling you the colour of the pencil is important because it's helpful in the um, uh, later testing of the marginalia. Uh, Swanson wrote, because the suspect was also a Jew and also because his evidence would convict the suspect and witness would be the means of the murderer being hanged, which he did not wish to be left on his mind. DSS. Uh, and then at some later date, using a different grey pencil, Swanson's underlined Anderson's comment identified the suspect he was confronted with him uh, and his own comment also a Jew and added in the left-hand margin and after this identification which suspect knew no other murder of this kind took place in London and elaborating on on the end paper um, Swanson, Swanson wrote continue from page 138 after the suspect had been identified at the seaside home where he'd been sent by us with difficulty in order to subject, subject him to identification, he knew he was identified. On a suspect's return to his brother's house in Whitechapel, he was watched by police CTCID by day and night. In a very short time, the suspect, with his hands tied behind his back, he was sent to Stepney Workhouse and then to Colney Hatch, and he died shortly afterwards. Kosminski was the suspect, DSS. So I'm, I'm mentioning that he's initialed the, these points because, again, that was an important aspect in um, proving the, the genuineness of the, of the uh, marginalia. But, but mm -hmm. since these, um, these comments were first made public in the Telegraph in 1987, um, researchers have been trying to get to the bottom of Swanson's claims, such as where was the seaside home, who was the witness in the identification, and of course, who was Kosminski. Um, but because the definitive answers to these questions have yet to be found, um, some people have claimed that the marginalia might not be genuine. And in 2006, when the Swanson family loaned the book to Scotland Yard's Crime Museum, it was sent to the Met's Forensic Sci uh, Science Service for examination. And using a ledger known to be written by Swanson, but in black ink rather than pencil, uh, Dr Christopher Davies of the um, Forensic Department concluded there was strong evidence that the marginalia had been written by Donald Swanson stating that he might be able to reevaluate his opinion if he were to compare against more contemporary writings by Swanson in pencil. So when, when I began my researches back in 2012 and had access to the family archive, I discovered letters written by Swanson in the last years of his life um, and his personal address book, and they all displayed evidence of the shaking hand commented on by Dr. Davies. And Swanson actually writes, he's got a hand tremor, so he can't continue writing one particular letter to a, to a grandson. Um, I managed to contact Dr. Davies and asked if he'd be willing to take another look at the marginalia against his new samples. 
uh, and, and I was very pleased that he agreed to do so. Uh, and as a result, the conclusion was upgraded to very strong evidence for marginalia and Benton written by Swanson. Um, and off the record, uh, Dr. Davies said this was the closest we'd ever get in official report to an absolute certainty. But as far as he was concerned, the, 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 the marginalia was written by Swanson. And then when it comes to the substance of those comments themselves, both, well, both by Anderson in the pages of the book and, and Swanson on the margins, um, they're discussing a suspect and, and Swanson names him Kosminski. And I suppose the question is, detectives, uh, you know, Anderson and Swanson sharing a suspect, does it require that we follow their conclusions? Do we go, do we in our own minds go from Kosminski, the, the suspect, to Kosminski, the murderer? How much weight do you personally give to Swanson and, uh, and Anderson's identification of a suspect? I think it's, um, it's, it's very difficult to, to evaluate um, Swanson and Anderson based on what is, what is probably the, the, the more recent um, acceptance of, of the marginalia because the only Kosminski mm. that fight that has been found in all this time that, that seems to fit Swanson's comments, but not all of them is Aaron Kosminski found by Martin Fido um, well, back in 1988, actually. But um, he, he, Aaron Kosminski didn't die uh, soon after uh, being incarcerated in, in Colney Hatch as Swanson writes, and, and he wasn't arrested. Anderson seems to be quite clear that the suspect was identified soon after the murder of Mary Kelly. Um, Swanson doesn't correct Anderson's comment that Mary Kelly was the last Whitechapel, last true Whitechapel murder. So people today tend to think, well, Kosminski definitely was Aaron Kosminski, but how can we fit a square-shaped Aaron Kosminski into a triangle-shaped Swanson marginalia? It doesn't work. So Swanson and Anderson were, weren't that they, they weren't that um, uh, strong in their convictions that Kosminski was the killer. Maybe it's just another suspect. Um, so he tends to be dismissed based on that. But Anderson himself seems very confident that his Polish Jew was the murderer, although he doesn't name Kosminski. He says, I'm almost tempted to disclose the identity of the murderer. So as far as he was concerned, the, the Polish Jew who was identified by the witness who refused to give evidence was Jack the Ripper. Um, Swanson's more restrained and refers to him as the suspect in the marginalia. And yet he does say that the witness refused to testify because he didn't want his evidence to be the cause of the murderer being hanged. So, you know, there's a case that could be claimed that the ultra-professional policeman Swanson was using the correct terminology of the policeman who's a suspect until charged and convicted when he'd become a murderer. That's one line of thinking. But I think we need to consider Swanson's habit of correcting printed statements in other examples of marginalia. Um, because, the, you know, these notes were written for his own personal use. They were never intended to be uh, seen by the public or for, certainly not for publication. Uh, and I feel if he disagreed with Anderson, um, any of Anderson's written comments, he'd, he'd, have, made, he'd have made a comment, um, as he does with, with other um, suggestions in other books. He doesn't challenge Anderson's claim that the last rip, true Ripper victim was Kelly. He doesn't, or nor that the killer was a Polish Jew, was a definitely ascertained fact. And it just leads me to believe that Swanson probably also believed Kosminski to be Jack the Ripper rather than just another suspect. Um, after all, he was the one officer who saw every scrap of evidence and report. And you have to assume that he knew more than anybody. Mm. Mm. In, in the final chapter of 
your book, Swanson. You write that Donald Swanson epitomized the evolving Victorian detective representing that era in the force's history. Would you offer a few, a few comments along those lines for our listeners? How was it that Swanson was really the epitome of a detective in that time? As, as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, the 35-year period in which Swanson served was an era of great advances in, in the methods of detection and forensics. And his story from the humble Bobby on the beat to return as superintendent of the CID at Scotland Yard, it neatly mirrors the evolution of policing from a time when they were using initially the most rudimentary equipment, such as rattles and cutlasses, not even having whistles at that point, to the earlier 20th century when he retired. And the force had adopted fingerprint evidence and forensic detection was changed forever. Mm. You've mentioned that your next project is going to be on the, the coroner who was so significant in the inquests and in investigating this case throughout, Wynne Baxter. Um, would you have a few minutes to, to talk with us about Wynne Baxter, who he was, and, and what you're learning about him as you research him more? Well, I think, as you said, Carl, uh, at the beginning of the, of the, the conversation, um, You'd found my um, article, it was for Reprologist magazine on Baxter, that was written back in 2005, I think, which is quite scary to think about. But uh, <laughs> that, that, that really was a sort of precursor, perhaps, to my research model on the Swanson book, because, you know, again, you know, people before that article appeared, perhaps saw Baxter as just always a, a fussy coroner, he's a busybody who was like to get his name in the papers and and, and things like that. And I thought, well, again, there's got to be more in this guy's background that gives some context to the way he conducted the inquest. What did he do in his professional life? Um, because the coroners, obviously, they although they received money for each inquest they conducted, that, that wasn't their full-time job. They were they were doctors or they were um, solicitors, barristers, that sort of thing. Um, and Baxter was was a solicitor first in uh, Lewis, down, down near Brighton in Sussex where he first became um, a, a coroner. I think he was probably in the early in his early 20s, so he was, he was quite young um, when he took on that position. Uh, and there's a quite a nice story that, I, that I, I dug out for the um, for the book on Swanson, where um, the, the former coroner had, had served at East Sussex for a number of years, but he was forced to give up the role in disgrace because he'd been embezzling funds from, from some... Uh, some widow, some rich widow who had entrusted him with of several thousand pounds. Uh, and again, that, that, that's a nice story, which gives a little bit of understanding and how Baxter came to the job. But um, when I was researching for that 2005 article, uh, there, there's, there's an enormous amount of information locally in Lewis about the Baxter family. Um, he, one of his uncles, George Baxter, was a very famous uh, artist, color, color print, Make a one probably one of the first um, artists who, who who had color prints made of his work. Uh, his father, uh, Winbacks's father, uh, grandfather John, um, was very famous in in Sussex and around the whole area. He had the first um, mobile library, lending out books. They became a publisher in the area, and in fact, Baxter's down in Lewis is still uh, uh, one of the largest employers uh, in the area. They own several of the until recent years of the. Uh, Sussex newspaper so there's there's quite a lot there's quite a lot in Winbaxter's background that you know you think well he obviously understood from an early age with his grandfather's owning of the newspapers and the printing press and that sort of thing that let's let's rose a profile 
of of the family name. He, mm. he probably did like getting his name in the in in the press, but um, recognizing he had a few um, coroners positions in in London after he'd moved to the city in his in his solicitor's practice. Um, he was a deputy coroner of the City of London um, coronership uh, and, and another. Uh, I think the um, South Middlesex I may have got that wrong. The South Middlesex jurisdiction, um, but the uh, going right back to an early question about what was the East End like and being poor uh, and the poverty line and, and lots of disease and things. There obviously were lots of inquests needed in that area, so that was a for a coroner that that uh, coronership area jurisdiction of East Middlesex, which covered Whitechapel in the East End was was you know um something that they all aspired to because there were so many inquests that uh, into unnatural deaths um violent deaths that there was quite a lot of money to be made um looking at it from a pure, from a purely economic view um so Baxter pulled out all the all the, all the stops really when he went when he uh, went up for the candidacy um in 1886 when it when it came along uh, he put lots of adverts in the newspaper sort of trying to get um uh, attracting the votes and, and that sort of thing um interestingly when when the first vote was cast it, it seemed that he'd been beaten into second place by roderick mcdonald who who um later conducted the inquest into mary kelly's death but uh, baxter's um supporters who were there at the count made such a noise uh, and, and uh caused such a problem that the count couldn't be conducted so they had to redo the vote at a later date and of course Baxter won quite considerably by on that occasion so he's a very interesting character um and in terms of the ripper inquest that he presided over I I don't think that he was fussy or or, or overstated I, I I think he or flashy as he's been described in some books I think he was more of a conscientious um he wouldn't uh officer he wouldn't take any nonsense he didn't let uh, a witness off lightly if they didn't give the evidence they'd been called to give so i think he was just looking to get the bigger the, the most full story you know as as each case deserved really um and and he he stayed in in that position until he actually died in he had a he had a, a, an attack in the in the after an inquest in 1920 he'd been in position for about 24 years and, and conducted over 10,000 inquests it was estimated at that time and, and this goes you know right from before the ripper time up to First World War, spies, um, the elephant man, Joseph Merrick, died in Whitechapel, uh, right up through to um, Houndsitch murders, Churchill was um, called to give evidence on the inquest. So there's an enormous scope, not just in Baxter's personal life, but the context and the content of the inquest that he presided over, again, a bit like Swanson with the, um, uh, the evolution of the Met. I think there's a big slice of history covered by win backs to be in the coroner for, for East Middlesex which I think would make for a fascinating story anyway mm. Mm. well we will <laughs> I'm, I'm eager for that book I'm looking forward to, to reading that um, well Adam thank you again so much for joining You're us welcome. on Unobscured and, and sharing your work uh, this is brilliant and I hope we'll send many listeners to your book and, and your future book I, I'm really excited for that I'm glad you were able to share with us that you're working on that project Baxter is such an interesting figure and to really have a detailed exploration of his life would be would be brilliant. I, so. I totally agree, Carl, and uh, um, probably never get a chance to get around to it. But beyond that, I was also thinking about a biography of Dr. Bond 
would be an interesting one weekend with such a such a long career but there's always not there's never enough time to do all this sort of all this sort of research and writing (laughs) (laughs) that's it for this week's episode of unobscured stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with purdue global when you come back with a purdue global degree you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. One of his great aunts was in the bookies one day lining up to place her bet. And... Behind her in comes a toff with a top hat, a rich guy for some reason is in the area and stands behind her to place his bet. And some of the local lads who are in there think this is an opportunity here for a bit of mischief. So they reach round said toff and they pinch auntie's bottom. Now she does not ask any questions at this point, by the way, she just wheels round leading with her fist and knocks the bloke out with one punch. So one good right hook, and this poor toff, top hat doubtless flying across the bookie's floor, is spark out on the floor. So that tells you how violent, you know, how dangerous life was for women. They had to be prepared to come out fighting and no questions asked. 
Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.